You know, thinking about the feathers, <clears throat> some time ago I was outside the church kitchen, and it's either before or after the church service, Bill's office was open, and I saw either two or three of the feathers' children in there starting to rummage around on his desk. Well, that's beautiful. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful the way that God has allowed Bill to become like a grandfather to this precious family? Also, I think we need to recognize the contribution that Brother Easton made. Carl and, and Jason were very close during those years of his transition, and we thank God just for the relationships in this body and how God uses us in ways we never could plan. Also, did you notice this morning, James Downing was on the keyboard, James Grinnell was leading the songs, James Thorpe prayed. James Garrett is in the pulpit. And the only outlier is that one. <laughs> nothing, is there nothing, okay, nothing wrong with that. All right. Now, I got a phone call from Ed Harkins. <clears throat> he said, Jim, I want you to know you can't get by with anything tomorrow because I'm going to be watching you on Zoom. Uh, thank you, official Zoomite, <laughs> for setting this up. <laughs> Have you ever had anybody ask you, <clears throat> what is your favorite verse of Scripture? I've had people ask me that, and I've struggled. I don't know. Let's see. What kind of depends on what I'm going through. <laughs> Well, uh, do you have any kind of a life verse? And I think I would have to answer that by saying Acts 13.36. Let me tell you the background. It's a rather turbulent time. I was preaching a series of sermons through the book of Acts. It was a time when Peoria was a restless ribbon. And Love Song, the musical group, was in town. And I'd gone to various places to hear them, and on Saturday night, they were playing at 41st and Peoria in what was a Safeway store, now I think it's a hardware store, and as they were singing and praying and witnessing, there were a crowd of young people around them, and there were people throwing beer bottles at them, and one man in a car tried to get through the crowd to run them down. I'll tell you, I was so inspired that night. <laughs> and the next morning, I preached a fiery sermon. And one thing I said was this. If I were 19 years old, I would have hair down to my shoulders. And I'd be out there on Peoria among those young people. Since I'm 45 years old, I'd dress like this and minister to you. The result was the organist resigned. Sunday school superintendent resigned. One elder left the church saying, I want to go somewhere where people believe more like I do. What a turmoil. And in the midst of that, as I was reading through Acts 13 in preparation for the next sermon, I hit that verse. David, after he fulfilled the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep. And slept with his fathers. And I just sense the Holy Spirit say to me, 
That's the way I want you to live. Allow me to use you in your generation. Die, be gone, be forgotten. From that day on, it has been my desire to live that way. And I've been very imperfect. Martin Luther wrote, I fear my heart more than I fear the Pope and all of his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope self. And I have to say, (laughs) I have within me the great Pope self. And as I pray and ask God to audit my life daily, he keeps showing me how self is still alive. Oh, I wish I could say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Henceforth it is not I that live, but the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God that loved me and gave himself for me. (laughs) But that still is my life verse and the passion of my heart that nothing in my life will prevent God using me in my generation. And when I die, there won't be any need for memorial service. (laughs) There will only be, I pray, the words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Someone asked me, well, what is your favorite portion of Scripture? You know, as I thought about that question, I would have to say probably John chapter 14. Because so often as I've gone through this and that, that passage just comes to my mind. It's beautiful in Greek and beautiful in English, and it's so poetic. When you read it, you just automatically memorize it. That's an astounding section of Scripture, John chapter 14. You know, if you have a red-letter Bible and you look at it, John chapter 14 is all in red except for three verses. John 15 is all in red. John 16 is all in red except right at the end, and John 17 is all in red. What is the longest discourse in the Bible of Jesus recorded? Well, we might say the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But if you count the verses in the Sermon on the Mount that are spoken by Jesus, and you count the same, count the verses in John 14, 15, 16, and 17, you'll find they're a tie. Isn't that interesting? Red, in the red version, the red form of 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 the Bible of John 14, 15, 16, and 17. What a beautiful passage. But as I thought about this passage in preparation for today, the Holy Spirit first began to stir something else in me. The one who spoke these words is the incarnate Son of God. The incarnation, fully human, Fully man. Think about that. You know, before from this pulpit, we've talked about the two different kinds of knowledge and how there are Greek words that differentiate between these two. The first being the noun, ido, and the verb, uh, idon, rather than the verb, oida, oido. 
and uh, the noun uh, genomai and the verb genosco, and the first refers to factual knowledge. This I know about this man, but genosco or genomai refers to I know him. In the Sunday night seminar speaking on that topic, we illustrate it this way. I know a lot about Abraham Lincoln. I know he was born in Kentucky. He grew up in poverty in Indiana. His mother died when he was nine years old, largely self-educated. I know about his debates. I know about his assassination. I know a lot about Abraham Lincoln, but I don't really know the man. We didn't sit together as he talked to me about the love of his life and how he's afraid to get married and how he broke off the engagement and later <laughs> re-engaged and married. He didn't sit and look, talk with me about that. He didn't sit and sob in my presence when three of his children died before they reached adulthood. Oh, yes, I know a lot about him, but I don't know the man. Now think about this. Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, was involved in the creation. John begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him. And nothing apart from him came into being that has come into being. He is involved in the creation. God created, Scripture says, everything in heaven and earth and all that is therein. He was a part of the Godhead that designed humanity to have flesh and blood and nerves and brain he knows how it works. But think about this. Prior to 1,970 years ago, someone who was going through desperate straits to look at God and shake his fist at him and say, you don't know what it's like to be a human. All you have is uh, idol knowledge, facts about me. 1,970 years ago, there ascended to heaven one who had walked among us as a man, as a boy. <laughs> I heard the Cherokee saying, never judge a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. <laughs> and I later heard it, never judge a man until you walk a mile in his shoes. Think about Jesus. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary for nine months. This being dwelt in the womb of a mother. He knew the experience of passing down the birth canal, nursed at his mother's breast. You ever think about what the toddler Jesus must have looked like <laughs> as he was learning to walk and how he babbled <laughs> as he learned to talk. 
a baby, a toddler, and then he became a little boy. Then he became a bigger boy. <laughs> then he became a big boy. And then he became a man. What did he do prior to the age of 30? We don't know. His stepfather, Joseph, we often call him a carpenter, but the Greek word really means craftsman. He, could have, he probably was a stonemason. He did things with wood, made furniture, worked with his hands. And the tradition among Jewish families was that the son learned the trade of the father. It's not out of place, I think, to assume that Jesus learned to work with his hands. He knew what that was like. But then there came a time when he was 30 years of age in which he embarked upon his ministry. Think of what he went through for three and a half years. The book of Hebrews says he was tempted in all points like as we are. The Greek word there is pyrodzo. And sometimes we think that means enticement to sin, but it really means put to the test. In the Old Testament, every time it says the Jews tested God in the wilderness, in the Septuagint version, it's always that word. Tested. Now perhaps enticement might be a part of that test, but it's not limited to that. We know after his being immersed by his cousin, John, he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, and there he was tested for 40 days and 40 nights throughout his life. He knew what it was like to walk a long, dusty road and just be worn out. He knew what it was like to be exhausted. You can't go on. He was carrying the cross. He, he fell. He couldn't handle it and somebody else had to carry it. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be thirsty. Scripture records those events in his life. And all oh, the burden he bore in his heart for people. More than once in Scripture, speaking of groups and of individuals, it is said he was moved with compassion. And the Greek word there is splongnizomai, which means he felt it in his gut. And I'm sure some of you do. I know I do. Sometimes it just, I, Jim Garrett, am the most blessed man in the world. But I'll tell you something. I bear the burdens for some people that at times it is hard to go on. And that was true of Jesus. In his inner being, he suffered for people. And he had the horrible experience of one of his dearest friends selling him out for a bit of money. And oh, the experience on the cross. He had genomai knowledge. No longer from 1,970 years ago, no human being should shake their fist at heaven and say, you don't understand. Because for 33 and a half years, 
he walked in a human's moccasins. That's the one who spoke those tremendous words in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. And he understood the consternation that his disciples were facing as he began to talk to them about his departure. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, if you're reading the King James, it says, ye believe in God. If you're reading other versions, it says, believe in God. Now, translation isn't mechanical. It requires often a judgment call. And this is one of those cases. The Greek word here is pistuate. And that is either the present active second person, which is statement of fact, y'all believe, <laughs> or it is the very same form of the verb as used for the imperative, which is an exhortation or command is believe. But regardless of which is true is the point Jesus was making. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, as I say, the King James says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And so, for many years, we heard and hear people talking about the mansion we have in heaven. You know, the song, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that bright land where forever we'll shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I've got a mansion just over that. You know the song. <laughs> I've got a mansion. But you know, none of the other versions say that, do they? <laughs> say a room or place. And that's because the Greek word is monet, which literally means an abode, a place to live. But in 1611, when the King James Version was translated, one of the words for house was manse, M-A-N-S-E. <laughs> And if your background is Presbyterian and you were Presbyterian years ago, the place where the minister lived was called the manse. Nowadays, usually the parsonage, but it used to be the manse. And so in 1611, more than one manses is a mansion. <laughs> so there are many mansions. By the way, it's actually the Latin that is taken from that, which is mansiones, means a place you stop overnight when you're journeying. But... Monet, a place to live. And the point Jesus is making is this. As he later said, no man comes to the Father but by me. Whenever all of us who travel through Jesus to get to the Father, to get to heaven, none of us, when we get there, will find a no vacancy sign. But instead, welcome. There is a place 
prepared for you and waiting for you. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about? Oh, oh, how could you be that good to us, God, to personally, personally, I go to prepare a place for you. I don't know whether it's going to be a big house, big rooms, or a shack on the backside of something, but it's going to be comfortable because Jesus personally has seen to it that it is prepared for me. Isn't that something to think about? Beautiful to think about. But then there's this. You believe in God, believe also, I go prepare a place for you. And if I go, if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there ye may be also. He's coming again. You know, I listen sometimes to the three different Christian television stations that we have in Tulsa. And it's interesting as you hear these different preachers and different teachers, how they're explaining the end times, their pre-trib, post-trib, millennial. I recently encountered one that says, well, really the book of Revelation is a Jewish book, and so the only way to understand is understand the Jewish feasts, how they're spelled out there. Sometimes I think we work too hard to spell out stuff <laughs> that's best left ambiguous. Remember John and First John said, It does not yet appear what we shall be, <laughs> but when he comes, we should be like him because we will see him as he is. John said, he didn't even know. <laughs> and like we said before from 1 Corinthians, Paul said, we see through a glass darkly or in a mirror, dim image. But then face to face, we human beings have trouble <laughs> living with ambiguity. But none of us has a mind big enough to wrap it around God and his plans and all the things he's doing. But he's coming again. If I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to resist being depressed in this time we're now living in. And sometimes I tend to look at the clouds and say, Oh God, how long? How long? How long? Come, Lord Jesus. But whether we die before he comes or we're walking this earth when he does come, 
if we're going to heaven through him, there will be absolutely no dull vacancy sign <laughs> waiting for us when we get there. Praise be to God for his goodness through Jesus.